Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20, Jesus taught that a good tree is known for the good fruit that it bears. And we certainly saw the truth of the gospel displayed in the fruitful lives of those in the early church. They showed great courage in choosing to obey God, irrespective of the danger that entailed, considering it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ by sharing their possessions with one another. In Acts chapter 6, Luke describes some of the growing pains of that growing church. Look at verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The number of Christ followers was rapidly increasing in Jerusalem and they came from many different ethnic backgrounds. A complaint arose concerning the care of some of the foreign widows who were being overlooked in the daily food distribution. The apostles sensed the growing demands of leading such a large group and they knew something needed to be done to prevent a potential argument from breaking out. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, they quickly gathered everyone together. Everyone could see that certain parts of the ministry needed more attention, and yet the twelve clearly knew that their main focus was to be one of prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. What a warning that is to leaders even today. We should be very careful how much we take on because when a person is spread too thin, nothing gets done well. Notice that the apostles did not view the work of waiting on tables as being any less important than the work of preaching, but they knew what their priorities were as apostles. And so they proposed that the church appoint seven men to oversee the task of taking care of the widows. These men were to be of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. And I think that there's much that we can learn from the way in which the Holy Spirit led the apostles to deal with this problem. You see, they didn't become defensive about the complaint, but rather they saw the wisdom of delegating certain ministries to other trustworthy people in order to focus on what God had specifically called them to do. Verse 5 reveals that this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's worth noting that according to their names listed, all of the appointed men except for one were Greek. And that's interesting because Luke had told us earlier that it was the Greek-speaking widows who were feeling so neglected. The men were to be led by Stephen, a spirit-filled man of faith. The church chose the seven and then the apostles lay hands on them as a group and prayed for God to use them. So everything was done in good order and as a result, the word of God spread and the number of believers increased in Jerusalem, including even a large number of temple priests. And I can't help wondering if the priests weren't won over by the way the apostles acted in this case. Perhaps they saw the disciples were different to the religious leaders that they knew. They exhibited none of the pride and ambition that the priests were probably used to serving at the temple. The apostles lived what they said they believed, that they were servants of God, and their actions spoke even louder than their words. I find the appointment of Stephen and the others so encouraging. You know, many believers serve the Lord in what are considered unimportant jobs in the eyes of the world. But these tasks are not insignificant in the eyes of God. Stephen's ministry was described as just waiting on tables in verse 2. And yet, look at what we're told about him in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. His main focus may not have been preaching and teaching like Peter, but God still used him. The Holy Spirit worked through him in incredible ways as he touched the lives of the people he served. And no matter where God calls us to serve, we should consider it an honor and ask for him to equip us as he did Stephen. Stephen soon drew the attention of some who were opposed to the gospel. We're told opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? As Stephen served the people, he shared Christ with everyone who'd listen. As a result, a certain group of Greek-speaking Jews who had a synagogue in Jerusalem began to debate with him. 
However, because the Holy Spirit gave him wisdom, their arguments were not at all successful. And so they secretly persuaded others to make false accusations against Stephen, accusing him of blasphemy, of speaking against Moses and against the temple. As their lies stirred up opposition, the religious leaders had him arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. The false witnesses claimed that they'd heard him say that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs that had been handed down by Moses. Despite the fact that the radiance of God's glory was on Stephen, Luke even says that his face was like the face of an angel, these men saw nothing but the need to silence his message. And one is reminded of the way that these very men treated Stephen's Lord Jesus before him. They had brought forward dishonest witnesses to falsely accuse Jesus of blasphemy too. As the high priest begins to examine Stephen, notice the respectful reply Stephen gives. He calls them brothers and fathers in Acts 7 verse 2, asking that they listen to him and really hear what he has to say. Stephen's message to the ruling council was actually the climax of the early church's witness to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it's also the very thing that led to the believers being scattered from there, taking the gospel with them. But that's still ahead of us. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Stephen reminded them of several things from Israel's history in the hopes that their consciences would be affected. He wanted them to realize that from the very beginning, all of the key leaders of Israel had obeyed God's call to leave behind what they knew and follow where God was leading. The Jewish leaders of Stephen's day, however, wanted things to go on just as they always had. They were unwilling to go where God was now leading them. Stephen also wanted them to remember that God's people had been worshipping him long before the law or the temple in Jerusalem, and that no matter how magnificent a place built by the hands of men could not contain God. His final and most important point was that the Jewish people had always rejected those whom God had sent, and in crucifying Jesus, they continued to follow the pattern of rejecting God. Let's look at his arguments more closely in Acts 7, where he begins his story with Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. 
Through the life of their ancestor Abraham, Stephen wanted the Sanhedrin to remember how their people's history began with God's choice of one man, a man who was willing to believe in God's promise and who followed him by faith. Stephen continued to trace their heritage as a nation as well as the purposes of God throughout their history. Verse 8, Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. The focus of Stephen's message then shifted to Joseph, who was one of Jacob's twelve sons. Motivated by jealousy, Joseph's own brothers had rejected him and sold him into slavery. Their decision led to great hardship for Joseph, who not only lived as a slave in Egypt for years, but was falsely accused, imprisoned, and forgotten by the very people he helped. However, God was with him and rescued Joseph from all his troubles, promoting him to a position of authority, second only to Pharaoh himself. When a famine came on the land, Joseph was in the perfect position to help his family, who came down to Egypt in search of food. And despite their past wickedness, Joseph chose to forgive his brothers, announcing to them in Genesis 50, verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God gave Joseph the wisdom to see things from his perspective and also the grace to forgive those who had wronged him. And in so doing, he made Joseph a picture of Christ himself. Just as God had warned Abraham those many years before, the people of God now living in Egypt were about to go into bondage. And Stephen continues in verse 17, As the time grew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our fathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. But Stephen then reveals that in the fullness of time, a special servant of God was born. Verse 20. 
At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. We begin to see through Stephen's words how Moses also foreshadowed Christ in many ways. This great man, Moses, did not jealously guard his position or privileges. Rather, as God's servant, he was willing to give up his kingdom in order to answer God's call to help his people. But his own brothers did not recognize that he was there to rescue them, and so they rejected his leadership and doubted his motives. But their rejection of the one God had sent did not alter God's choice of servant. God had seen the oppression of his people and he'd heard their groaning and God himself had come down to set them free. God chose Moses as his special servant to be their deliverer, but the people rejected him. And we begin to understand why Moses referred to the Messiah as being one who would be just like him. Stephen makes this connection to Jesus in verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Jesus is the one Moses had spoken of and commanded that they obey. But just as the people had rejected Moses, they rejected Christ as their deliverer also. As the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel, Christ 
came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Stephen continues to build his case that they were no different than their ancestors. And in verse 38, he reminds them of what happened when Moses received the tablets of the law on Mount Sinai. Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Once again, the Jewish people had refused to obey the one whom God has sent. And Stephen goes on to reveal that in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They persuaded Aaron to make an idol in the form of a golden calf, one of the false gods of Egypt, because they wanted to worship it. In rejecting Moses, they rejected the one true God and honored what their own hands had made instead. As they wandered in the desert, they continued to drift from God, choosing to worship the false gods of the region. Stephen notes the consequences, saying, But God turned away and gave them over to worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have filled up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Stephen then reminded them how God had established how Israel was to worship him. He drew their attention to the tabernacle, which was the tent in which they had worshipped God during their desert wanderings. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in the houses made by men, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The Israelites had worshipped God in the tabernacle, a movable tent of meeting that they carried with them in the desert and then took into the promised land in the days of Joshua. King David had wanted to build a permanent place of worship in Jerusalem, but it was his son Solomon who built the temple, following the same design as the tabernacle. Stephen quotes Isaiah 60 verse 1 to 2 to remind the Sanhedrin that the one who had created the heavens and the earth could not be contained in a mere building. 
What was left unsaid, but that was clearly implied, was that these people had foolishly come to worship the temple rather than the God who had said that it should be built. They'd lost sight of the one it was all about. Stephen pulled no punches in his conclusion in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He could hardly have said it more directly. He accused them of being no better than their fathers before them, of refusing to obey the call of God and rejecting the righteous one, Jesus Christ, whom the prophets had revealed would be sent to them. They'd not only rejected him, however, they'd betrayed and murdered him. And in a final blow to their pride, Stephen pointed out that though they made much of the law of Moses, they had in effect disobeyed it. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. That he was standing is very significant. When Jesus ascended, we were told that he sat down at the Father's right hand in his position of supreme authority. He was seated in heaven because Christ's work was completed. But Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is about to die and his glorious Lord, the King of Kings, stands to receive him into the heavenly courts. It is also significant that Stephen called him the Son of Man, one of the titles that belonged to the promised Messiah. That was the final straw for the outraged Sanhedrin. Verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. What irony that the religious leaders killed Stephen just as they killed his Lord before him. A final proof that they really were repeating the sins of their fathers. 
What blessedness that just as his Lord had done, the faithful servant of God, Stephen, commits his spirit into the Lord's care and forgives his murderers as he gives up his life. Stephen's death was a real turning point for the church. It triggered a terrible persecution in Jerusalem, causing all the believers except the apostles to scatter. But it was all part of God's greater plan because as they dispersed to other cities, they took the gospel with them, enabling it to spread from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had commanded. And interestingly, these first verses of Acts 8 have introduced us to a man who will figure greatly in that gospel's expansion, and he will become the leading character in the rest of the book. We'll pick up here in our next lesson. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.